0: I uh-huh. It's Unrelated Things! Greetings and welcome to episode number 16 of Unrelated Things. This is the podcast where I talk about things that interest or irritate me that I've seen in the news lately and share some of my favorite things with you. You can find out more about Unrelated Things or you can make a donation at unrelatedthings.net. You can follow the dollar sign on unrelatedthings.net to find our affiliate links where you can support unrelated things by buying things that are unrelated, including flowers, music, batteries, trampoline parts, and anything on amazon.com. You can provide feedback at unrelatedthings at gmail.com. And you can follow unrelated things on Twitter or on Facebook. On to the Oration, and Observation. Top Pick! My top pick for episode number 16 is Crowdsourcing. And I have a couple of crowdsourcing um, events or, or crowdsourcing projects that I'm going to highlight uh, in this top pick. Because TV is so good. And if you know me and if you've listened to earlier episodes of Unrelated Things, you'll know that was the theme to Eureka. Unfortunately, This is not a Kickstarter or Indiegogo campaign for Season 6 of Eureka, but I hope to see that before too long. This is a project by one of the stars of Eureka, Sally Richardson-Whitfield. has a Kickstarter. She is producing a play based on the life of Lena Horne. Here's a bit from the Kickstarter page. A Lady Must Live a Bioplay Inside the Imaginary Mind of Alina Horn by Ricky Beetle Blair. Ricky Beetle Blair is the writer of the play and the producers are Sally Richardson Whitfield and Craig Dorfman. Here's a little bit about the project. Backstage after the first preview of A Lady and Her Music. Legendary movie star Lena Horne wrestles emotionally and physically with her ghosts, struggling to rework her show to recount her life story with more candor and complexity. Wrangling with her dead mother over the accuracy of her recollections, she calls upon, among others, her husband, her son, and her dearest friend, legendary gay black composer Billy Strayhorn, all of whom died tragically early, to help recreate and debate Lena's Highly Subjective Memories. So go and check out A Lady Must Live, Kickstarter campaign by Sally Richardson-Whitfield, who played Allison on the television show Eureka, among many other roles. Currently is recurring Um, What show is she recurring on? I don't have it here in front of me. Um, but currently has been in a few uh different recent shows such as Castle and Showtime's House of Lies. Um her the, the show that she had a recurring role on was The Newsroom um on HBO and she is lined up to start another another new show soon. I don't recall the name of that show as well. So she has been keeping busy since Eureka wrapped up, and hopefully, when Eureka restarts in my—that's that's still in my dreams—but hopefully that will happen. Uh, she will be available to reprise her role there. So anyway, check out her project, A Lady Must Live, by Sally Richardson Whitfield on Kickstarter. Another project you should check out is a project by Scott Johnson and his sister, Wendy Dunford. And they are bringing a new podcast into being. And they have launched their funding on Indiegogo. So check out Indiegogo for The Therapy Show with Scott and Wendy. Here's a bit from their Indiegogo page. For the last three years, Therapy Thursday with Wendy Dunford has been one of the most popular segments on the Morning Stream podcast. Now with your help, we get to expand on what was started there with Wendy and Scott presenting Season 1 of The Therapy Show. Season 1 will include 12 episodes that have the time to explore topics in greater depth than the weekly segments. Episodes will focus on topics including parenting, addiction, marriage and relationships, depression and anxiety, understanding how the brain works, and more. Scott Johnson's projects are always entertaining to me, and I highly recommend you check out all of his podcasts and find out which ones are enjoyable to you. There's there's probably a dozen that he's very directly involved with, and then maybe a dozen more. Um, on Frog Pants that he is not a host of, but are hosted by other people but are part of the Frog Pants network. Um, So check those out. Check out the Indiegogo campaign for the therapy show with Scott Johnson and Wendy Dunford. And if that sounds like something you want to support, send a little money their way. All right, cool. And the third of the three crowdfunding projects I'm going to highlight in my top pick is Tabletop Season 3. If you listened to earlier episodes of Unrelated Things, you've heard me talk about Tabletop. It's one of my top podcasts. And maybe it's not a podcast, it's a web, web video program. Um, might be, be a better description of it Um, It's part of the Geek and Sundry channel on YouTube, which also lots of episodes of the Geek and Sundry shows are now being shown on Hulu as well, including Caper, which I talked about last episode. So Tabletop Season 3 had an Indiegogo campaign. I believe it is still going on, but wrapping up very soon. And I don't know what the goal... The goal to get to Season 3 was $500,000 to produce 15 episodes featuring 15 different games. As of last check, the Indiegogo for Tabletop Season 3 has surpassed $1 million. This is a terrific show, very well produced, uh, enjoyable to watch people play board games. So I highly recommend you check that out. It has funded. It is not in as great a need of additional funding as the other two projects that I discussed. But if you are a fan of Tabletop and want to assist Tabletop Season 3 or want to get in on some of the perks that are remaining for the Indiegogo project, check out Tabletop 3 Indiegogo Campaign With Will Wheaton. One of the biggest deals ever in the history of ever. A story from Huffington Post by Kevin Short. A new food item will soon be available at the end of your IKEA shopping gauntlet. Veggie Meatballs. The Swedish furniture giant will roll out a vegetarian and a chicken version of its iconic meatballs in stores worldwide sometime next year, a company spokesperson confirmed to the Huffington Post. The vegetarian meatballs are part of IKEA's effort to reduce the environmental impact of its estimated 150 million meatballs sold per year. Quote, we are aware of the meat issue with greenhouse gases. Joanna Yarrow, head of sustainability for IKEA in the UK, said at an environmental conference in London, according to a report last week in The Telegraph. We are looking at all our food products from a sustainability perspective, but specifically meatballs. They are very popular, and they are also our most carbon-intensive food item on our menu. And I've been to IKEA a few times. I have not dined at IKEA, though the prices in their their little cafe restaurant are uh, pretty compelling. I don't believe their menu is extraordinarily extensive, but to describe this as their most carbon intensive food item on their menu is pretty significant. So. Any way they can find to reduce that impact is a positive thing. I am a vegetarian. I applaud the inclusion of vegetarian meatballs to IKEA's menu. I'm I'm not a vegetarian that's a fan of substitutes that are designed to resemble the meat that that I'm leaving out of my diet. I'm not uh, excited about veggie sausage or veggie hot dogs or veggie burgers that are the style that is intended to resemble beef burgers as closely as possible. I do like veggie burgers, but I prefer the grain-based veggie burgers or the ones that, that clearly are composed of a lot more vegetables and or rice. So uh, it'll be interesting. I will probably try these out at some point in the future. And when I do, I will let you know what I think. Boy, howdy. Heavily in the uh, geek news recently is the big change that happened to Comixology after Comixology was purchased by Amazon. This story is from ComicsAlliance.com by Andy Corey. Digital comics retailer Comixology announced that it was retiring its existing iOS applications for iPhone and iPad and replacing them with a new version that does not include the ability to make in-app purchases, one of the platform's most signature and popular features. The iOS app's storefront is simply gone, leaving only a reader app in its place. Going forward, iOS users will have to pursue the less direct path of buying their digital comics from Comixology's web interface and later syncing them to their devices using the new app. This process circumvents Apple whose iTunes app store takes 30% of all in-app purchases from all vendors in the iOS marketplace, and presumably frees up more profit for comic book publishers and or comic book creators. The only, perhaps not the only, maybe the only significant potential positive of this change is Theoretically, and I say theoretically because I don't think that Amazon has definitively released any contract information regarding what cut they will be taking, depending on where your comics are purchased. Um, So, but in theory, there's potential for Amazon to take a lower cut than the cut that Apple was taking and to thereby have additional profits available to the creators of the comic. Um, that's a good thing, especially for the independent, independent uh, comic creators who don't have the, the big comic houses um, to support and drive promotion and to have an additional cut in, in the profit as well the what remains to be seen if there is an increase in the profits going to the creators is whether that will make up for the expected losses of fewer people buying comics the original comicsology app made it extremely easy to buy comics and at least in one place i read that the overwhelming number of comics purchases came via the iOS app and the App Store. So if the purchase, if the, the number of units purchased drops by more than 30 percent, then even if all of the profit that was going to Apple goes into the hands of the comic creators, they will only be breaking even. So again, it remains to be seen until somebody releases their sales numbers, and I don't expect Amazon to be releasing any of those kind of sales numbers, and presume Comixology will keep that very close to the vest as well, being now a a fully-owned subsidiary of Amazon, Um, but I expect some independent comic producers will probably be releasing some numbers of what what how their products were selling before the change versus how their products were selling after the change let's get deeper into the conversation so from comicbook.com by Jerry Conway who is a comic book or comic producer um And this is a bit from the beginning of the story, just laying out who Jerry is. Known forever to fandom as, quote, the man who killed Gwen Stacy, Conway is also the co-creator of The Punisher, Firestorm, Power Girl, Man-Thing, Werewolf by Night, The Jackal, Killer Croc, Tombstone, Tarantula, Count Vertigo, Vibe, Vixen, Commander Citizen Steel, and many other popular and not so popular characters for Marvel and DC Comics. So he had this to say as part of a longer story about the change. And so, as we could have predicted, Amazon wrecks comicsology. What has it been less than a month since Jeff Bezos bought the most promising tool for renewing the mass distribution of comics in the digital era? I'll give the man this. He's moved faster to undermine an existing technology for the benefit of his own company than General Motors did when it sabotaged Los Angeles' public transit red line for the benefit of the bus fleet they wanted to sell the City of Angels. Job well done, Jeff. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, as of yesterday, Comixology removed the storefront from its digital reading app for comics on the iPad and iPhone. It didn't replace it with anything, just a link that takes you out of the app to the Comixology website. No big deal, right? Just one or two or three, as it turns out, additional steps for the fanatic comic book reader to access comics on his digital reader. Nothing to get upset about. Wrong. This is a very big deal because it strikes to the heart of what made Comixology's app a near-perfect venue for discovering and falling in love with new comics, a venue creators and publishers have been searching for since the collapse of mainstream newsstand distribution in the late 1970s, early 1980s. It destroys the casual reader's easy access to an impulse purchase, and that's a terrible development for the future of comics. And the story goes on from there. If you want a pretty well-argued um, review of the change and from a very, very specific point of view, uh, I definitely recommend you check out um, Jerry Conway, The Comixology Outrage from comicbook.com. That we have complete and utter freedom of speech, uh, for the most part. From the nation.com by Karen Greenberg. It's mind-boggling. Torture is still up for grabs in America. No one questions anymore whether the CIA waterboarded one individual 83 times or another 186 times. The basic facts are no longer in dispute, either by those who champion torture or those who, like myself, despise the very idea of it. No one questions whether some individuals died being tortured in American custody. They did. No one questions that it was a national policy devised by those at the very highest levels of government. It was. But many, it seems, still believe that the torture policy politely renamed in its heyday the Enhanced Interrogation Program was a good thing for the country. Now the nation awaits the newest chapter in the torture debate without having any idea whether it will close the book on American torture or open a path of pain and shame into the distant future. No one yet knows whether we will be allowed to awake awake from the nightmarish and unacceptable world of illegality and obfuscation, into which torture and the network of offshore prisons or black sites plunged us all. April 28 marked the 10th anniversary of the moment that the horrors of Abu Ghraib were made public in this country. On that day, a decade ago, the TV news magazine 60 Minutes, 60 Minutes Two, broadcast the first photographs from that American-run prison in. Quote, liberated Iraq. They showed U.S. military personnel humiliating, hurting, and abusing Iraqi prisoners in a myriad of perverse ways. While American servicemen and women smiled and gave thumbs up, naked men were threatened by dogs or were hooded, forced into sexual positions, placed standing with wires attached to their bodies, or left bleeding on prison floors. Thus began America's public odyssey with torture. A story in many chapters and still missing an ending. As the Abu Ghraib anniversary nears in the White House, the CIA and various senators still battle over the release of a summary of a 6,300-page report by the Senate Intelligence Committee on Bush-era torture policies. The story goes on from there. Fairly lengthy story. Uh, Not super long. Um but has a a lot of insight into where we are and where we've been in our acceptance of our government's use of torture of our, quote, enemies. By saying stuff like this, you're setting yourself up. And another thing. From 9to5Mac by Ben Lovejoy, Steve Jobs has been ranked number one in CNBC's first 25 Rebels, Icons, and Leaders. Described as, quote, a definitive list of people who have had the greatest influence, sparked the biggest changes, and created the most disruption in business over the past few Quarter century. Steve Jobs are in the top spot for both transforming the way we think about technology and redefining the style in which we live. More than any other member of our group of extraordinary entrepreneurs and executives, all outstanding leaders, his vision spurred changes far beyond his industry and put an indelible stamp on the wider culture. The list was created as part of CNBC's year long 25th anniversary celebrations. I think you just nailed it. From consumerist.com by Kate Knox. Everything you need to know before emailing the FCC about net neutrality. Uh, A little background before we talk a little bit about what's in this particular story. Um, The Federal Communications Commission will consider proposed rules to protect an open internet on May 15. The proposed rules will ask questions about how best to ensure the internet remains an open platform for innovation and expression. This is directly from the FCC's website. This is how they phrase their proposal. Chairman Wheeler is encouraging the public to share their views now. He intends to have rules of the road in place before the end of the year to protect consumers and entrepreneurs. He will be listening, and your comments will help inform the final rules. Please send your thoughts to openinternet at FCC.gov. The FCC and other government agencies are required when they're proposing certain rule changes are planning to enact certain rule changes, they're required to have comment periods for those changes in which the public can freely comment on what they think about those proposals and the, the FCC and other agencies are required to take, those, um, to take those comments into account. They're not required to follow any specific comments But the comments must become part of the record and they must uh, react or respond in some way to the comments in general. What's really unusual about this um, request for comments from the FCC is they have already posted and set up the email address for you to send your comments. Once again, that's openinternet@fcc.gov. So you're free to comment on the proposal. What they haven't yet done is publish the proposal. So you are free to comment on the news stories and the commentary that the FCC has made about the proposal that they haven't yet published. Um, I think that it's it's appropriate to comment early in this case. Um, I think you should go check out what the FCC and the FCC chairman, whose previous job was a lobbyist for the communications industry, much like many many people that get into government positions, they often have previous connections to the industries they become uh, the watchdog or the regulator of. So, Chairman Wheeler has made some comments about the upcoming proposal. There have been stories written about the upcoming proposal. There is a great deal of concern that the upcoming proposal will um, strike down what has been known up to this point as net neutrality which were previous rules that the court found invalid that said the Internet service providers had to treat all traffic on their sites relatively equally. They couldn't, they couldn't favor certain traffic based on being paid to do so. The court struck that down pretty narrowly, Because the FCC hadn't defined internet service providers as, essentially, as utilities, um, which then would allow them to, to put the type of regulation that net neutrality called for into place. So that threw the net neutrality rules kind of out the window. The FCC could have come back and said, we will move towards classifying the ISPs, similarly to utilities, so we can reinstate the net neutrality rules, but that's not the direction they seem to have gone in. They seem to have left a big loophole, and it's all seemed to because the proposal hasn't been published yet. Um, They seem to have left a big loophole in which the ISPs can charge companies to get faster or higher bandwidth and make certain portions of the traffic on their networks be delivered quicker, better, faster, higher bit bit rate to the end user, which could end up in a situation where the big corporations with lots of money can afford to deliver their traffic faster to the end user and the average company, the startup, the independent company can't afford to and we end up with a fast lane and a slow lane which will def- definitely then favor the information that's flowing over the fast lane because it's been paid for. So, uh, Feel free to comment now, in addition, when the rules actually get published, which should be the middle of the month of May. You will have opportunities after that to make additional comments. So if you want more information about what it means to comment and what happens to your comment after you make your comment. this story on Consumerist is pretty thorough about the process. It again is uh, by Kate Cox, COX. It's called Everything You Need to Know Before Emailing the FCC About Net Neutrality, and it's from Consumerist.com. So, just a couple highlights. Um, they discuss how public comments fit into the FCC's rulemaking process. So, the basic outline is the FCC identifies a need for a new rule and drafts one. The Commission publishes a notice of proposed rulemaking. The public gets 30 days or more to make comments in response to the proposed rule. After the public comment period, the FCC takes all information into account and either enacts the rule, alters the rule, or scraps the whole thing. The good news about commenting early is the FCC has time to amend the proposal before it publishes a proposal, which hopefully There'll be a strong outcry against the, the uh, potential change that's coming up, and they will make that edit before, make some of those edits before that is published. The story also talks about where do email, emailed comments go and how public is the public record? Is personal information included? And essentially, um, as far as that piece goes, the FCC published comments and filings online under the name of the person or organization who submitted it. So there is an official comment form, it requires a name, and it requires an address which is published along with the commenter's name. Um, and It goes on, of course the FCC can't publish information it doesn't have. If an email comes from Optimus Prime, then that's a name they'll have to run it under. But that also means they don't necessarily have to take that comment seriously either. When the proposed rule becomes public on May 15, supporters and detractors alike will finally have specific text to argue for or against. That means everyone may have a whole lot more to say. As a representative from the FCC told Consumerist, quote, there is no need to comment twice, but once the NPRM is out, there may be specific proposals that people would want to comment on, and they are free to do so. So commenting early does not uh, remove your ability to make additional comments after you actually see the text of what you're commenting on. And that's just yeah. the way it is. That is just the way it is. From sfgate.com. A dead mink whale that washed ashore in New Jersey suffered some further indignity. Someone tagged it with graffiti. Apparently, that's how we roll here in New Jersey. The whale, which was roughly 12 to 15 feet long, was discovered Thursday morning below Atlantic City's Central Pier. Police tell the press of Atlantic City the purple markings are not gang-related and appear to be Greek letters. The letters appear to be Tau Epsilon Phi, a fraternity that has chapters at several area schools, followed by what looked like 94. Spokesman Jesse Cohen says while it has not been confirmed that Tau Epsilon Phi members were involved, the fraternity considers it a reprehensible act contrary to its teachings and is cooperating with authorities. Are you kidding me? From BoingBong.net by Cory Doctorow, the NSA hacked Huawei totally penetrated its networks and systems, and stole its source code. A leak from part of the documentations that were released by Snowden details an NSA operation called Shot Giant, through which the U.S. spies infiltrated Chinese electronics giant Huawei, ironically because Huawei is a company often accused of being a front for the Chinese People's Liberation Army, and an arm of the Chinese intelligence apparatus. The NSA completely took over Huawei's internal network, gaining access to the company's phone and computer networks and setting itself up to conduct cyber war attacks on Huawei's system. The program apparently reached no conclusion about whether Huawei was involved in espionage. However, the NSA did identify many espionage opportunities in compromising Huawei, including surveillance of an undersea fiber optic cable that Huawei is involved with. This this story was pretty interesting to me because a lot of U.S. companies and the U.S. government warns um, those companies to be very cautious in working with Huawei and buying equipment from Huawei because of the potential that the Chinese government could use that equipment or use the, their business connections to spy on the U.S. When the U.S., when the NSA gained access to Huawei, they didn't determine that that was actually occurring, but they then put in place their own um, spying program and processes on Huawei's networks. and ostensibly on Huawei's equipment through through the software they may have been able to compromise. So uh, the warning that Huawei's equipment may be compromised was a valid warning, but it may just be the NSA that's compromised that equipment and not the Chinese government. Although, would not be surprised at all if it were both. I don't even know where to start. From CultOfMac.com by Mike Elgin. A new messaging app called FireChat is available in the iOS App Store. It is different than a lot of the previous messaging apps. It's a new kind of app because it uses an iOS feature unavailable until version 7. The Multi-Peer Connectivity Framework. The app was developed by the crowdsourced connectivity provider OpenGarden and this is their first iOS app. The Multi-Peer Connectivity Framework enables users to flexibly use Wi-Fi and Bluetooth peer-to-peer connections to chat and share photos even without an internet connection. Here's the really big deal, it can enable two users to chat not only without an internet connection but also when they are far beyond Wi-Fi and Bluetooth range from each other. Connected with a chain of peer to peer users between one user and a faraway internet connection. It's called wireless mesh networking, and Apple has mainstreamed it in iOS 7. This is a really interesting new feature that Apple's enabled. Apple has used it internally previously as part of AirDrop, um, where two different devices can work and send data back and forth to each other. Um, Those devices need to be in proximity to each other to be able to do so. This takes that a little bit a little step further and allows a chain of devices to pass information from one to the other. The FireChat messaging app works by allowing a message to be sent out to multiple users and I haven't used it enough to know if it allows direct messages um, to be sent through those other users as well but definitely the potential for that is there if it's not actually built in already. Um, This function you do need to be in proximity to another user um, or proximity to a Bluetooth or Wi-Fi connection to another phone but not necessarily to the phone to which you are sending the final message as long as the intermediate phones allow the passage of that data. So this is primarily going to be beneficial in large crowds. Um, Think of a stadium where you want to send a message to someone on the other side of the stadium. Your Wi-Fi or your Bluetooth connection is not going to travel that distance. But if there are a 100 phones in between that that data can pass, pass from one to the next, you will be able to send that message to its destination. This has some potential for use in in areas where there is some political unrest, where there are demonstrations in passing information from from person to person within those groups as well. Um, And that can be really important because in many countries where the people are demonstrating against the government, the government has taken steps to shut down Wi-Fi networks and shut down other methods like Twitter and Facebook access um, so that they can try to control that type of communication. So the multi-peer connectivity framework And peer-to-peer mesh networking have a lot of promise for future delivery of information online. I'm going to move on now. From nzherald.co.nz by Peter Huck. Seismologists will be asking many questions about the magnitude 4.4 earthquake that struck Los Angeles this week, which is not this week anymore. Let's see if this story is dated. This story is from March 22nd. A sharp jolt that reverberated across densely populated Southern California. The quake, which hit at 625 a.m., Occurred beneath the Santa Monica Mountains on a little-known fault where faint tremors are the norm, and which last slipped 80 years ago. Quote, you really are surprised to find an earthquake on a fault you didn't know about, Thomas Heaton, director of Caltech's earthquake engineering research research laboratory, told the Los Angeles Times. It was a wake-up call on how little se- seismologists know about the labyrinth of mapped and hidden faults. What the USGS told locals was, quote, earthquake country. Scientists have long known that injecting fluids near faults heightens pressure and may induce quakes. Mounting evidence suggests fracking raises this risk. A paper published in the journal Science found an 8.8 quake in Chile in February 2011, induced a 4.1 quake in Prague, Oklahoma, 16 hours later. Swarms of small quakes followed near the Wilzetta Fault, long considered dead by seismologists. In a state where quakes were once very rare indeed, but where injection wells, there are 4,400 active ones, are common. In November 2011, Prague was hit by a 5.7 quake that wrecked 12 homes, injured two people, fissured a U.S. highway, and was felt in 17 states, including Wisconsin, 1,285 kilometers away. The Journal Geology says Oklahoma's quake swarms are probably caused by injection wells. The USGS cites few quakes before 2008 when fracking hit the gas pedal rising to more than a dozen that year, almost 50 in 2009, more than 1,000 in 2010, and 1,400 in 2011. Texas, Colorado, Arkansas, and Ohio show similar arcs as the number of magnitude 3.0 quakes, about 40 a year in Oklahoma, climbs sharply. The CBD report says quakes attributed to wastewater injection quote include a 4.8 in Texas, 5.3 in Colorado, 4.7 in Arkansas, and 3.9 in Ohio. This is information that was new to me. I have not been really close to the debates over fracking. Most of the previous information and concerns that I had heard were regarding the water and the chemicals used to inject in to fracture the, the rock to extract the gas or oil that they're after but I had not heard anything prior to this about the potential for that process to increase the frequency and magnitude of earthquakes in some areas so really really interesting information um, in this story from nzherald.co.nz called Cracks Showing in Industry Built on Shaky Ground. I'm not kidding you. From the Globe and Mail.com by Eric Tucker FBI agent cleared in killing of Sarnayev's friend. A prosecutor in the state of Florida has cleared an FBI agent of any criminal wrongdoing in the fatal shooting of a Chechen man as he was being questioned about a Boston Marathon bombing suspect, two law enforcement officials with knowledge of the investigation said. The officials said State Attorney Jeff Ashton will not bring charges against the agent. The Justice Department also has been investigating but has not yet released its findings. A third law enforcement official said the Justice Department is expected to reach the same conclusion based on a recommendation from the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Ibrahim Todashev, a 27-year-old mixed martial arts fighter, was killed in Orlando in May while FBI agents and Massachusetts state troopers questioned him about his friendship with suspected Boston Marathon bomber Tamerlan Sarneev. Officials originally said Todashev lunged at an agent with a knife while he was being questioned. They later said it was no longer clear what had happened. But the investigation, at least the investigation by the state prosecutor of Florida, uh, did conclude that there was no criminal wrongdoing on the part of the FBI agent who killed the individual who was being questioned uh, about the Boston Marathon bombing. It is inane and terrible. From boingboing.net by Rob beshiza Michael Smith went outside shirtless after being awakened Tuesday morning yelling at a tree removal company to get off his property. The workers thought they saw a gun in his waistband and called the police. Smith, who'd gone back to bed, was awakened again minutes later, this time by Maine State Police at his front door backed up by a group of troopers with assault rifles in his driveway. They were asking him via a megaphone to come out of his house. Why did the police give him uh, such a rousing second wake-up call? Well, as it said, the workers thought they saw a gun in his waistband, so they called the police in, and the police took all the precautions they felt necessary given that information. Uh, Michael Smith didn't actually have a gun in his waistband. He had what this story calls... The second dumbest tattoo in America tattooed on his lower torso is the silhouette of a gun which appears when he is wearing his pants, which thankfully he was at the time, which appears to be a gun sticking out of the waistband of his pants. So uh, kudos to you and your brilliant tattoo um, and I hope you enjoyed your wake-up call it's just bad from tech crunch by pankaj mishra camera the camera plus app Uh, just got a update or recently got an update and got a new feature called AirSnap that helps users capture photos and videos remotely by pairing two iOS devices using Bluetooth or Wi-Fi like iPhones, iPads, or iPod Touches. Both the iOS 7 devices need to be loaded with the Camera Plus app which converts one of the devices into a remote trigger and the other one for capturing images and videos. So another use of the technology similar to the technology previously discussed which allowed for the sending of messages directly between devices without an internet connection uh, in between. AirSnap allows users to control flash, switch between camera modes, see instant previews on the trigger device, and select front and rear cameras so interesting additional function to the Camera plus app, which has a lot of other functions which were already present before this new function, the uh, air snap function that allows two local devices to directly connect to each other and one of those devices to control the other device. Look at that! From Uproxx.com by Jeff Sorensen, a 16-year-old boy bypassed security in the middle of the night and climbed a ladder to the spire of One World Trade Center, the nation's tallest building, where he apparently took pictures. The teen was arrested at 6 a.m. Sunday and charged with misdemeanor criminal trespass. According to a criminal complaint, the teen was quoted as telling police, I walked around the construction site and figured out how to access the Freedom Tower rooftop. I found a way up through the scaffolding, climbed onto the 6th floor, and took the elevator up to the 88th floor. I then took the staircase up to the 104th floor. I went to the rooftop and climbed the ladder all the way to the antenna. So, pretty dramatic incursion into One World Trade Center, um, which is not... Open yet to the public, and this 16 year old boy was able to essentially walk up to the top in the middle of the night and uh, sightsee and take some pictures from the top of the building. But that's not all. From laughingsquid.com by Roland Bishop. Three men now identified as James Brady, Andrew Rossig, and Mark Markovich, climbed to the top of One World Trade Center and performed a base jump from it at 3 a.m. There is a video of this recorded by Brady's helmet camera, and during it he watches as one of his fellow jumpers takes the leap, and then he jumps himself before quickly opening his parachute to land safely on the street below. The group, including Lookout Kyle Hartwell, surrendered to authorities on March 24, 2014. So if it's not bad enough that a 16-year-old can essentially walk up to the top of one World Trade Center in the middle of the night, three men can do the same and leap off of the top. I believe they need some stronger security. And now you're supposed to just go ahead and move on. Okay, then let's go ahead and move on. There's a interesting pair of maps on laughingsquid.com, published by Justin Page on March 20th. And the title is States Classified by Their Best and Worst Attributes. Um, so this was found... Uh, or it was originally published on Reddit by Redditor BigAfricanHat. And Redditor BigAfricanHat has created two maps of the United States that classifies each individual state by its best and worst attributes. The information was mostly taken from StateMaster. For states that didn't have anything applicable on StateMaster, I Googled phrases such as X-State ranked best or X-State rated number one, and used recent news articles. All stats are per capita where applicable. Let's see if I can read some of this small text. So as far as the best attributes goes um, the state of California has the highest gross state product per capita Montana has the lowest HIV-AIDS rate. Florida has the highest percentage of high school students who pass AP exams. Vermont, my former home state, has the lowest CO2 emissions. And my new home state has the highest median family income, and that would be New Jersey. So to check out how your state fared. Uh, Check out that map. And on the other side, the worst attribute per state or the... yeah, that is how it's phrased, the worst attribute per state per capita. Uh, New Jersey has the highest property taxes, which goes along with that highest median income, so those align pretty Well, Florida has the worst pedestrian safety, and California is deemed the worst state for business. I wonder what study that came from. Montana has the highest motor vehicle death rate, and Texas has the lowest high school graduation rate. My former state of Vermont has the most Iraq war casualties per capita, and poor Maine is tagged with the worst standard of living. And its neighboring state of New Hampshire has the highest murder rate of seniors 65 and over. Again, check out that map to see where your state landed and which worst attribute was applied by this particular individual. I'm not finding any redeeming value in it. No, not really, but it's at least kind of fun. From money.cnn.com, Sony orders its first original TV series for PlayStation. This is really fascinating. The landscape of television and television series and, and TV networks is changing pretty dramatically. Um beginning last year and rolling into this year, there the the there's a big shift in who the major networks are and the shift hasn't really happened yet um, but is definitely underway. All of these new players are 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 funding programming um, that will be unique to their, their particular uh, distribution method and model. Um, One of the key early ones was Netflix with its, its original series. Amazon has a lot of original series now. Hulu has original series, and it's branching out. Yahoo has announced it will have original series. And now Xbox and PlayStation are getting in on the game as well. So in in three or four years from now, the television network picture will be dramatically different than what it is today. So this is from money.cnn.com. Joining streaming television services like Netflix and Amazon, Sony's PlayStation Network has commissioned its first original TV series. Sony has ordered 10 one-hour episodes of Powers, a drama based on the comic book series of the same name. It will be produced by one of Sony PlayStation's corporate sisters, the Sony Pictures Television Studio. So Sony's corporate sister is a major television uh, network that has its products in or its products distributed in a lot of different places. Sony S N E first signaled the last first signal last summer that it would pursue original TV programming for the PlayStation Network. The strategy mirrors that of its biggest video game console rival Microsoft, which started started to experiment with TV-style programming for Xbox Live subscribers years ago and has increased its investment in the space lately. One of the shows that Microsoft is developing is based on the Xbox game franchise Halo. So another entity gets into the original programming uh, pool and is uh, testing out the waters I find I find the shift I, I see some some strong positives with the shift and I see some other challenges with the shift the classic cable um, cable network process that we have now with Cablevision or Comcast or Time Warner, soon to become Comcast, Time Warner, NBC, I don't know who else they've bought recently. Um, Previously could aggregate most of the major television networks, or if you wanted to spend hundreds of dollars a month, perhaps all of the major television networks, and you could essentially get all the programming in one place. So on the challenging side, having programming available exclusively on Netflix, exclusively on Hulu, exclusively on Amazon, um, potentially exclusively on Apple, I'm not sure if they've got into the exclusive game yet, but I can see the potential for them to do so. Um, It fractures the places where you need to go to see what you might want to see. So it, it ex- may exclude you from being able to see some of the things you might want to see as well. So it, the process is going to make it harder to be able to get everything that you might want to see. Um, that's not a complete change. It already There already are limits on that capability for many, many people who don't or can't or don't want to spend hundred plus dollars a month to get all the cable channels that might have programming that they like. Um, and on the other side of things the exclusive content is what's going to be able to drive the winners and losers. Um, if there's a show that you know you want to see and it's only on Netflix then you're going to have to sign up for Netflix. Um, I do like the a la carte model, as long as the costs per network are reasonable. I think at this point, where there's three or four significant networks, like Netflix and Amazon and Hulu, costs being in the neighborhood of 8 9 or $10 a month seems pretty reasonable. I could sign up for three of those and have a, a $30 a month bill as opposed to for some basic cable or basic, like, dish network um, channels costing in the neighborhood of $60 a month. So that's a positive. Um, I, I definitely see it as a generally a good trend, but if I see a program that I, I am really interested in, and also the, the flip side is, aside from the original programming, the exclusive deals that happen. um, Shows like Downton Abbey uh, being available only or primarily through Amazon.com. Orphan Black as well is on Amazon.com. A fantastic British show called Misfits is only available, and I say only, it's only available by subscription on Hulu um, it is also available on the iTunes store where you can purchase by episode so there is some flexibility because of the different models and Apple's model is is different than the subscription models that are common in the other services but then you're paying per episode for for Apple as opposed to uh, one one price gets you all you can eat um, through the other, the other services. So it's still possible to save a good deal of money, depending on your viewing habits, by cutting, cutting that cord, uh, and ditching that, um, cable provider and going a la carte with other services. You can get a lot of entertainment. There's additionally YouTube and other places are direct to independent producers. Um, where you can get lots of content as well so just a really fascinating time to see the shift in the tv network and television programming situation one other positive is programming that the big networks can either no longer afford or choose to for financial reasons not pursue may get a second life and do have an opportunity to get picked up by one of the new networks for additional seasons and additional episodes. This happened to Arrested Development. I believe there are a couple other programs that I can't think of at this point that have followed that path. And, of course, I am hopeful that someone realizes what a great show Eureka is and picks up Eureka for season six. It can be Netflix. It can be Amazon. It can be Apple. I'm, I'm not picky. Just make some more episodes, please. Mark my words. From BuzzFeed.com by Dave Stopera. 77 facts that sound like huge lies but are actually completely true. Here's a few of those 77 facts. If you put your finger in your ear and scratch, it sounds just like Pac-Man. The YYK on your zipper stands for Yoshida Kogyo Kabushi Kageisha. Maine is the closest U.S. state to Africa. Anne Frank, Martin Luther King Jr., and Barbara Walters were born in the same year. 1929. The name Jessica was created by Shakespeare in the play Merchant of Venice. Cleopatra lived closer to the invention of the iPhone than she did to the building of the Great Pyramid. Russia has a larger surface area than Pluto. Saudi Arabia imports camels from Australia and Hippo milk is pink. Oh, my gosh. From Wired.com by Brandon Keem, K-E-I-M. Voracious worm evolves to eat biotech corn engineered to kill it. So biotechnology and genetically modified organisms are a big push in the agriculture industry and there have been long-term warnings about the potential for the targeted um, pests to become immune to the genetically modified organisms and indeed that is exactly what is happening. One of agricultural biotechnology's great success stories may become a cautionary tale of how short-sighted mismanagement can squander the benefits of genetic modification. After years of predicting it would happen, and after years of having their suggestions largely ignored by companies, farmers, and regulators, scientists have documented the rapid evolution of corn rootworms that are resistant to Bt corn. Until Bt corn was genetically altered to be poisonous to the pests, rootworms used to cause billions of dollars in damage to U.S. crops. Named for the pesticidal toxin-producing Bacillus thurigiensis gene it contains, Bt corn now accounts for three-quarters of the U.S. corn crop. The vulnerability of this corn could be disastrous for farmers and the environment. Quote, unless management practices change, it's only going to get worse, said Aaron Gassman, an Iowa State University entomologist and co-author of a March 17 Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences study describing rootworm resistance. Quote, there needs to be a fundamental change in how the technology is used. First planted in 1996, B.T. corn quickly became hugely popular. Among U.S. farmers, within a few years, populations of rootworms and corn borers, another common corn pest, had plummeted across the Midwest. Yields rose, and farmers reduced their use of conventional insecticides that caused more ecological damage than the Bt toxin. There's a lesson to be learned for future crop traits, Shields said. Rootworm resistance was expected from the outset, but the Bt seed industry, seeking to maximize short-term profits, ignored outside scientists. The next pest-fighting trait, quote, will fall under the same pressure, said Shields, and the insect will win. Always bet on the insect if there is not a smart deployment of the trait. That may just be the best advice in Any situation where insects are involved, always bet on the insect. Oh no! From com. Story titled, You'd Never Guess What This 16-Year-Old Teenager Couldn't Buy at the Supermarket. Yvette Whelan was frustrated that her stepson, Liam, and his brother kept on losing her teaspoons, so she sent him to a local market to buy a pack of teaspoons. But staff at Tesco in Haslingden refused to sell the pack of teaspoons to Liam because he was under the age of 18. "'Knives, forks, I can understand, but teaspoons? No,' Yvette said to the BBC." There's just no common sense. And on that note, uh, butter knives or forks, I think, uh, also are ridiculous to have any kind of similar restrictions. Liam had to go home empty-handed and was, quote, really embarrassed by the incident, she added. Tesco later apologized for the incident, saying, quote, we do include a till prompt for proof of age on our self-service tills, for some items. We ask our colleagues to use their judgment as to whether this should be applied. In this instance, this was not followed, and we apologize to our customer for any inconvenience caused." So, strange story out of the UK. There is an understandable reason in theory why teaspoons may be restricted for purchase, um, because metal teaspoons are often used by drug users to, to liquefy their drugs. Um, so, a theory of why teaspoons may be restricted for purchase is somewhat understandable, but seriously, you, you can't control the sale of a teaspoon in order to potentially reduce a, a, a theoretical or best guess or unknown potential misuse of the product? Are you gonna not sell someone a hammer because they might use it to break a window instead of fix something? The, the it, it boggles the mind that This particular type of item lands on a restricted item list for sale for individuals under the age of 18. I'm not finding any redeeming value in it. From fastcoexist.com, the NSA can learn all your secrets from your phone metadata. Uh, there is argument that phone metadata is relatively harmless, so when the NSA scoops it all up and saves it forever and then goes back and looks at it later, it's okay because they can't tell a lot of really specific information about you because it's not your conversation. It's not the text of what you said. It is simply the metadata of who you called and when you called them." This story is about a study that sheds some light on those thoughts. Some would argue that metadata is pretty harmless. It's just ingoing and outgoing phone numbers, plus the length of those calls, right? The NSA is, quote, not looking at people's names, and they're not looking at content. President Obama Obama told reporters last June, According to the official narrative, monitoring metadata is no big deal, but two Stanford University researchers wanted to see how sensitive metadata actually was. So they enlisted hundreds of volunteers to install an app called Metaphone on their androids to pick up that metadata over several months. What they found shocked them. the degree of sensitivity among contacts took us aback, co-authors Jonathan Mayer and Patrick Mutchler wrote on Web Policy, Mayor's Blog, Participants had calls with Alcoholics Anonymous, gun stores, Narrow, Pro-Choice, labor unions, divorce lawyers, sexually transmitted disease clinics, a Canadian import pharmacy, strip clubs, and much more. The point is, they found it is actually really easy to identify names and infer very intimate details about a person's life just from phone metadata. And things got a, little, a lot creepier and potentially devastating when researchers posted real samples of what these metadata-informed stories could tell. Take, for example, Participant E. Participant E had a long early morning call with her sister. Two days later, she placed a series of calls to the local Planned Parenthood location. She placed brief additional calls two weeks later and made a final call a month after. The researchers write-up cite several other examples like the one above but take a minute to consider how a breach of privacy might affect participant E, whatever kind of service she sought from Planned Parenthood. Whether it be an abortion or a routine sexual health checkup, patients and doctors have received threats for even stepping inside a Planned Parenthood clinic. So, an interesting study on just how much data can be determined or inferred from your commonly thought of or often thought of as harmless phone metadata. Sometimes stuff happens. Sometimes stuff happens and unfortunately What happened to this gentleman in the next story happens much too often. From bigstory.ap.org, a man who spent nearly 26 years on death row in Louisiana walked free of prison in March, hours after a judge approved the state's motion to vacate the man's murder conviction in the 1983 killing of a jeweler. Glenn Ford, aged 64, had been on death row since August 1988 in connection with the death of 56-year-old Isidore Roseman, a Shreveport jeweler and watchmaker, for whom Ford had done occasional yard work. Ford had always denied killing Roseman. State District Judge Ramona Emanuel took the step avoiding Ford's conviction and sentence based on new information that corroborated his claim that he was not present or involved in Roseman's death. Ford's attorneys said, Ford was tried and convicted of first-degree murder in 1984 and sentenced to death. Quote, We are very pleased to see Glenn Ford finally exonerated, and we are particularly grateful that the prosecution and the court moved ahead so decisively to set Mr. Ford free said a statement from Gary Clements and Aaron Novod, the attorneys for Ford. They said Ford's trial had been, quote, profoundly compromised by inexperienced counsel and by the unconstitutional suppression of evidence, including information from an informant. They also cited what they said was a suppressed police report related to the time of the crime and evidence involving the murder weapon. So after a very long time on death row another death row prisoner has been found to be not guilty and been exonerated of the crimes he had previously been convicted of based on additional evidence or additional review of the evidence one more from GigaOhm.com by Signe Brewster. The Foldoscope project, which went live online today, totally turns the old school microscope on its head with one that can be assembled in less than 10 minutes from paper and an inexpensive lens. The Stanford University lab behind Foldoscope foresees it being used for education and healthcare in areas where access to basic scientific equipment is difficult. The microscope costs less than $1 and could be used to dramatically increase the number of people screened for malaria. Quote, our microscope has all the little bells and whistles of a traditional microscope, but it is all implemented in a different medium. Foldoscope is made of thick paper, glue, a switch, a battery, and an LED. At $0.56, the lens is the most expensive part. The microscope is designed to be cheap enough that it is disposable after one use, potentially lowering the risk for spreading disease. So, an amazing new design for a vital piece of equipment that can help um, screen for malaria or other diseases or other bacteria, etc., that might be present and can just extend the availability of microscope technology in places where it never was available before. So amazing new design for a simple microscope to impact areas that financially or for other reasons haven't had that technology in the past. If you want a sign that humanity's still got it going on. Maybe that was one. But this one probably is not. From Kotaku.com by Brian Ashcraft. Public toilet in Japan accidentally exposes your most private moments. A, quote, transparency toilet was recently rolled out in the Japanese city of Oita, When in use, the transparent window goes opaque. However, according to reports, the toilet can inadvertently expose those inside for all to see. As soon as someone steps inside the public toilet, a sensor causes the window to go opaque, creating privacy. In Japan, this style of restroom has been dubbed smoke toilet. According to OEDA Press, the opaque window can accidentally go back to being transparent. The reason for this is an unforeseen issue with the sensor. If there is no movement in the toilet for 35 seconds, then the sensor thinks the toilet is empty and the window privacy shade disappears. It is possible to tweak the sensor, but the organization is keeping it at 35 seconds. The concern is that someone might fall inside the toilet and need help. And on a comment on a website in Japan one writer writes quote isn't this stupid changing 35 seconds to 50 seconds or a minute isn't that huge a difference another option could be to change the way that the system works so that the when the door is locked the window goes opaque This won't resolve the safety issue of someone who might, um, you know, suffer some some sort of health attack when they're inside. So the timer as a fail-safe mechanism may be the best method to adjust for that eventuality. But the length of time certainly could be changed to make sure that when you believe you're privately using the restroom, that that does remain private. Our children will never know what that's like. Hopefully they won't experience what that is like. From MacRumors.com, some speculation on the upcoming iOS 8.0 and what it will include. Apple is preparing to significantly improve its Maps application in iOS 8, claims a report in 9to5Mac. Apple will slow its work on UI changes and focus instead on improving the underlying infrastructure that powers the application. These data level changes will make Maps more informative and reliable for iOS users. The new application will also be injected with new points of interest and new labels to make places such as airports, parks, train stations, bus stops, highways and freeways easier to find, the sources added. Sources also say that the mapping application's cartography design has been tweaked to be slightly cleaner and to make streets more visible. Public transit is another major area that Apple will bring to the iOS 8 version of Maps. Tapping into the engineering talent the company has acquired from mapping companies such as HopStop and Embark. The new Maps app likely will allow users to find train, subway, and bus information in major U.S. and international cities. These public transit options will be embedded in the Maps themselves and in the directions panel where they will show up in a new tab next to driving and walking. So some upcoming positive updates and changes to the mapping feature mapping function in iOS 8 um, which will be great when maps rolled out it had a lot of opportunities and challenges um, and too often misdirected people I have occasionally found that to be the case though I find the mapping data to be pretty reliable not running into those challenges very often, but occasionally we will run into those challenges. Um, probably a bit more than I run into them with Google Maps, but I have run into some of those types of challenges with the Google, Google Maps data as well. This happens. Apple rolled out an update to iOS 7 called iOS 7.1, and then actually had a further update of 7.1.1 since then. But the 7.1 update quietly introduced changes that bring major improvements to the way iBeacons, Apple's Bluetooth LE Beacon standard, can interact with iOS devices. The changes were first spotted in a report from Beacon.net, B-E-E-K-N, .net. And this author, who was Jordan Khan from 9to5Mac, spoke with Third Shelf, which recently demonstrated its white-label solution for building mobile apps that interact with iBeacons in retail environments. So after opening an iBeacon app, though so the report claimed iOS devices are now capable of detecting beacons even when an app is not open and not running in the background. Quote, after opening an iBeacon app we hard closed it, not just putting it into the background tray but swiping it closed entirely. The phone still detected beacons and sent a message through the lock screen, something which in the past was reserved for apps that were at minimum running in the background tray. The functionality even works if you reboot your device. After you power down your phone and start it up again, It will continue listening for beacons even if you don't open up the app again. The change is an important one for the many companies and developers rolling out iBeacon solutions in what have so far been mostly retail and event environments. Previously the iBeacon functionality would stop if the user manually killed an app. This was under the logic that if a user manually kills an app, he or she doesn't want to interact with it anymore. And a note for me, I think that's pretty reasonable logic to go by. If I hard quit an app, then that usually means I don't want to see that app or its data anymore. Um, so the story goes on. While we don't yet have any additional details on the exact changes made for iBeacon functionality, the report from Beacon continues by adding that it also discovered significant improvements to responsiveness. In the past, for example, we'd see a delay of one to two seconds up to a minute on exiting a region. In iOS 7.1 we see it happen nearly instantaneously. So the connection drops once you get out of range for the iBeacon more quickly than it did before. So definitely Apple tweaked its iBeacon functionality when it rolled out 7.1. I think there's a lot of positive potential for iBeacon and the iBeacon technology. I think that Bluetooth connectivity, somewhat related to the other stories that, that I talked about earlier where we could get phone to phone peering, um, this, can, this will connect your phone to a, a beacon or a transmitter um, that can be placed anywhere and have various functionality, primarily designed to send messages to the phone um, when you're within range of the beacon. I think as long as businesses are very careful in their rollout and execution of iBeacons, I think they can be a positive thing. I think that businesses, too many businesses, won't be very careful about that. And the user experience won't be as good as it should be. It should all always be opt-in and it should be controllable by the person with, with the phone. So if there is not an easy way to shut off that app by quitting that app, there needs to be an alternative easy way to shut off that signal. If I, if I determine I don't want iBeacon and those messages to come to me, for a limited time, then I should be able to just switch those off. Um, If the only option to switch those off is to delete the app entirely, then that is probably what people will do if they don't have a good experience. So it remains to be seen what the functionality of iBeacons becomes over time. But it's this kind of stuff that drives me freaking crazy. That kind of stuff could drive you freaking crazy. It remains to be seen whether it will. Though I wouldn't be surprised. From feeds.mashable.com, Craig Ferguson to produce I effing love science for TV. So the effing is actually spelled out but with a little asterisk where the U Normally would be the host of CBS' Late Late Show, who recently announced he would be retiring from that program, announced via videotape message that at South by Southwest that the insanely popular Facebook page I effing love science will serve as the inspiration for a television show of the same name, set to debut later this year on Science Channel. Ferguson will be an executive producer for the project, which will feature a mix of live action, animation, and recreations in each 60-minute episode. If you know anything about me, you know I love science, Ferguson said in the video. Science has a naughty secret, it's that all things are connected, and this show is going to explore the randomness of science. Think of it as a late night Google search that goes a hundred pages deep until things get weird, and then you just keep going. So new science programming produced by Craig Ferguson based on the Facebook page I effing love science. That people watch it and then it's a thing. We shall see from Kotaku.com. A man known as the Lazy Game Reviewer was given by a viewer an old copy of the 1997 Combat Flight Sim Red Baron 2 for the PC. Inside that game was a coupon for 75 cents off a Red Baron frozen pizza. So what is a man known as the Lazy Game Reviewer to do? Of course, go and buy a Red Baron pizza and save himself 75 cents. The coupon did not have an expiration date, so this gentleman took it to a grocery store to try to use it. Lo and behold, it actually worked. It's a sign of the end times. From Salon.com. As the situation in Ukraine continues to fester, a handy history guide. The U.S. is backing Ukraine's extreme right-wing Svoboda party and violent neo-Nazis whose armed uprising paved the way for a Western-backed coup. Events in the Ukraine are giving us another glimpse through the looking glass of U.S. propaganda wars against fascism, drugs, and terrorism. The ugly reality behind the mirror is that the U.S. government has a long and unbroken record of working with fascists, dictators, drug lords, and state sponsors of terrorism in every region of the world in its elusive but relentless quest for unchallenged global power. And this particular article has a long list of those countries and details about who we supported when, when we were very likely on what I would deem to be the wrong side and supporting the wrong people and the wrong types of people. So this is, again, from Salon.com, March 8th, titled 35 Countries Where the U.S. Has Supported Fascists, Drug Lords, and Terrorists. And just a sampling of those countries, Afghanistan, Brazil, China, Cuba, El Salvador, Greece, Guatemala, Iran, Iraq, Laos, Libya, Myanmar, Nicaragua, Panama, Philippines, Syria, Yugoslavia, and Zaire. And that wasn't the full list. That was a partial list of the countries mentioned. And as I said, each country has specifics on who we were supporting when, and what side they were on, and what they did during that time. We live in a very different time now. If only that were true, but with the history we have had, And with the history we are still making, it seems to be too much of the same. Here's something a little bit different from NPR.org by Lauren Freyer. Spain's Robin Hood mayor fights for, quote, communist utopia. On a sweltering August day in 2012, the mayor of a tiny Spanish town, fed up with the country's economic conditions, did something drastic. He wa- it was the height of the economic crisis, and most Spanish politicians were away on summer vacation. With dozens of supporters, Mayor Juan Manuel Sanchez Gordillo of Marinaleda marched into the local supermarket in a neighboring town. "'Aren't you all hungry? Let's go shopping!' he yelled as they piled food into metal carts. They walked out without paying, distributing everything to the poor. Marinaleda, with a population of 2,700, sits in the southern Spanish region of Andalusia, where unemployment tops 35%. Several more times that summer, Sanchez-Gordillo led, led mass burglaries of area supermarkets, becoming a household name across Spain, the Robin Hood of Andalusia. Quote, my philosophy is that power, even the tiny little bit my town hall has, should give voice to those who don't have one, Sanchez Gordillo says. It should transform reality to be more fair, more humane, more equitable, and spread peace. Very well said. From Consumers.com by Mary Beth Quirk. When you hear the word Vermont, perhaps images of snowy peaks, crackling, cozy fires, and maple syrup spring to mind. It's a winter wonderland. Everything from there smells of snow and touch of roasting marshmallows. But just because you want people to associate your product with the wintry northern state doesn't mean you can just slap a Made in Vermont label on it and call it a day. That's the chili lesson of Massachusetts-based Mint Maker is learning after it reached a settlement with its northerly neighbor after mislabeling its Vermints tins as Vermont products. The state attorney general's office sued the company in 2012, saying that the metal tins sold between 2006 and 2011 shouldn't have borne the label, Vermont's all-natural mints. That's because they were actually manufactured in Canada with ingredients mostly not from Vermont. Just because you know consumers would maybe have a soft spot for Vermont, well, you can't mislabel things without violating consumer protection rules. Vermints has agreed to make amends and settle by donating $35,000 to the Vermont Food Bank, pay the state $30,000, and correct its product labels. Another story from Consumerists, also by Mary Beth Quirk. Some people swear by their chosen lottery numbers, whether their birth dates, anniversaries or the numbers from lost but most of those people still fail at winning anything but when one Bronx great-grandmother decided to try her luck at a recent Powerball she decided to just go with whatever a fortune cookie suggested and it paid off the 75 year old lucky winner tells 1010 Ten wins she won two million dollars in the Powerball after a night of Chinese food takeout her son picked up some Chinese food in Manhattan and brought it home And when they opened the cookie, the numbers, quote, looked attractive, so they played them. Quote, I used to play other numbers, and I never won anything, so these look just as good as any other. The fortune cookie gods must have been pleased someone finally took them up on their advice. Five of those numbers match the winning digits in the February 1 Powerball drawing. She'll get a lump sum of $1.246 million after taxes. Spoiler! From latimes.com by Sergei Loiko. A Siberian dairy plant was temporarily closed after its workers had been found bathing in milk. Tradehouse Cheese is a dairy producer in Omsk about 1,600 miles east of Moscow, was closed for 90 days by regional authorities for an urgent inspection after complaints resulting from photographs and a video posted by one of its employees on a Russian social network. In the photographs and video clips posted on New Year's Eve by worker Artyom Romanov, a group of undressed employees relax in a container of milk as part of their celebration. While still partly undressed, they then demonstrate cheesemaking in a clownish manner. Quote, But in reality, our work is very boring, Romanoff wrote in a caption accompanying the images. So, of course, the thing to do when you're bored at work, as all of us do, is take off your clothes and take a bath in a giant vat of milk. the hell is wrong with us? From wired.co.uk students hack Waze and send in an army of traffic bots. So these students did ran a test as part of a school project to see if they could manipulate the data that gets fed to Waze, and they did this in a controlled way in a safe area, um, but here's a description of what they did. We use a system to install and log into the Waze application by automating human operations required for creating an account. This provided us with an army of fake Wazers. We call them Wazer bots which we sent to a designated road to fake congestion in the Waze application. To send our Wazer bots to the desired road, we created a small Android application of our own simply called Traffic Jam. Traffic Jam generated fake GPS coordinates which were fed to the Waze application, making it think our bots are everyday Wazer users driving about the designated road. Finally, we turned Traffic Jam We tuned traffic jam to generate GPS coordinates such that our army of Wazer bots would appear to be gradually slowing down at the designated route. So these students actually created a fake traffic jam, which populated the data in their tests of the Waze app. Um, This is really an interesting study. I use the Waze app fairly regularly to travel uh, back and forth on my commute to work. It's a great app. It's now owned by Google, but the app is still independent on iOS. Um, And it has good user-generated data, so if there is a police officer ahead, or if there is a car stopped on the side of the road, or debris in the road, or a traffic jam, that will be reported by users and that data will then pass along to other users. So it will it will literally tell me car stopped on shoulder and it will show me the relative distance to that potential uh, hazard on the road. It's a, a really great app. Um, I, I think that it's really effective in delivering um, good information and it also will reroute you if the if it finds a better route along the way. So Waze is a, a very good app for navigation. So this, I won't quite say attack, but this test of the system and the potential for the system to be tricked is some really interesting information discovered by this group of students. Oh, thing. From thedailybeast.com, a new study released this week, or not this week actually, this story is a little bit older from March, um, called Wasted Catch Unsolved Bycatch Problems in U.S. Fisheries reveals the nine dirtiest fisheries in the United States. It's a dirty bunch indeed. The waste between them accounting for nearly half a billion wasted seafood meals in the U.S. alone. At the dirtiest fishery, Southeast Snapper Grouper Longline Fishery, 66% of the animals caught are discarded, a number that includes more than 400,000 sharks in just one year. Close behind is California Set Gillnet Fishery, where 65% of animals caught are thrown away. I saw an infographic a while back about sharks, and it had a comparison of the number of sharks that kill humans, or the number of humans who are killed by sharks each year, in comparison to the number of sharks that are killed by humans each year. And the number of sharks, I want to say, was in the mi- millions. Um, and I found that number to seem quite quite large and challenged, I was challenged to, to believe that number. But if this particular fishery ends up discarding more than 400,000 sharks in one year, makes that number from the other infographic much easier to believe and just very devastating to the wildlife population in the ocean back to the story the gut-wrenching data retrieved from the national marine fisheries service exposes bycatch as the dark and deadly underbelly of commercial fishing it's still the largest threat to maintaining fish populations and Ecosystems. So, from devastating the wildlife in the ocean to devastating the human life and wildlife on the land, from newyorktimes.com by Andrew Jacobs. From taxi tailpipes in Paris to dung fired stoves in New Delhi, air pollution claimed 7 million lives around the world in 2012 according to figures released by the world health organization more than one-third of those deaths the organization said occurred in fast developing nations of asia where rates of cardiovascular and pulmonary disease have been soaring around the world one out of every eight deaths was tied to dirty air the agency determined twice as many as previously estimated its report identified air pollution as the world's Single biggest environmental health risk. And this story goes on with more detail. Again, from the New York Times. Story came out back in January and is titled Pollution Killed Seven Million People Worldwide in 2012. Report finds from BuzzFeed. A Virginia School's K through eight principal sent eight-year-old Sunny's family a letter arguing that Sunny isn't feminine enough. Quote You're probably aware that Timberlake Christian School is a religious, Bible believing institution providing education in a distinctly Christian environment. We believe that unless Sunny as well as her family, clearly understand that God has made her female and her dress and behavior need to follow suit with her God-ordained identity that TCS is not the best place for her future education. And Sonny lives with her grandparents who have adopted her, and... Her grandmother had this to say in response. Quote, how do you tell a child when she wants to wear pants and a shirt, and go out and play in the mud and so forth? How do you tell her, no, you can't. You've got to wear a pink bow in your hair and you've got to let your hair grow out long. How do you do that? I can't do that. Even though Sunny is a good student, the school told WSET-TV that beyond her short hair, unspecified things about Sunny disturb the classroom environment. <clears throat> the letter says students have been confused about whether Sunny is a boy or a girl. I'm a girl, Sunny says. I know I'm a girl. How do you label a child eight years old, her grandfather Carol asks, or discriminate against an eight-year-old child? The school's letter warns that administrators can refuse enrollment for quote, Condoning Sexual Immorality, Practicing a Homosexual Lifestyle, or Alternative Gender Identity, unquote. Accompanying this uh, brief story about the situation with Sunny and this school in Virginia are photographs of Sunny. Um, She she looks like an average 8-year-old. Granted, her hair's not long, she's not wearing dresses and bows, but I think it should not be very challenging for people, once they learn who Sunny is, to know that Sunny is a girl. And I think the school is making a major issue out of one that shouldn't exist. The school is independent and can, because it is an independent religious school and not a public school, it certainly has the right to set specific rules for uh, standards in the school, but the application of this rule in this case just seems to be pretty egregious. I'm not finding any redeeming value in it. Nor am I, and if that wasn't bad enough, here's another great story coming out of our schools and the reactions of administrators to what's happening in the schools. This is from daily.com by Kate Nibs, K-N-I-B-B-S. Like any bully teenager, a 15-year-old sophomore at a Pennsylvania high school was tired of getting mocked. The teen, who remains unnamed due to his age, would tell his mother about the torment, but he wanted to go to school authorities was something that guaranteed that they could no longer ignore his harassment. So the next time bullies started verbally abusing him, he recorded the incident on his school-sanctioned iPad and took it to his mother. She transcribed the disturbing disturbing recording in which the bullies allegedly threatened to pull the student's pants down and pretend to hit him and contacted the school. Instead of using the seven-minute audio clip to discipline the aggressors caught on tape, South Fayette High School Principal Scott Milburn called the police on the bullied student. Reports indicate the student was questioned by Milburn, Associate Principal Aaron Skirbin, Dean of Students Joseph Silhanek, and Lieutenant Robert Kurta. According to the bullied student's mother, Shay Love, Milburn told her he believed her son would face felony wiretapping charges, and Lieutenant Curta agreed with that assessment because the recorded students had an expectation of privacy in school. Love also says the men pressured her son to delete his recording from his iPad. They then gave the student Saturday detention, which he served. The student who is diagnosed with Comprehensive Delay Disorder, ADHD, and an anxiety disorder was not charged with wiretapping when he went to court, but South Fayette District Judge Maureen mcgraw Desmond convicted him of disorderly conduct for making the recording last month. Quote, I wanted some help, the student said during the hearing, according to transcripts. This wasn't just a one-time thing. This always happens every day in that class. The bullied student was ordered to pay a $25 fine and court costs, The students allegedly bullying on tape were not charged with anything or disciplined. Love's son will appeal the court's decision and she will fight to have the charges dropped. Another absurd and ridiculous response to a bullying incident in school in which the blame is put on the person who is being bullied and the bullies are not dealt with which lets them get away with it and and sends them the message that they didn't do anything wrong and that the person that they were attacking is the person who did things wrong Um, it's it's unbelievable that the administrators and the police and the court system would take this to this level Uh, It's understandable that they would correct the behavior of the bully student in the sense that he did do something that violated rules and they need to make sure every student is protected. But the fact that they protected some students and didn't protect every student by failing to protect him is absolutely outrageous. We live in a very different time now. NBCnews.com story by Maggie Fox. Obamacare has helped as many as 9.9 million people to get new health insurance, and more than 4% of all Americans have gotten health insurance for the first time, according to a new Gallup poll. It's the largest poll yet to assess the effects of the 2010 Affordable Care Act Act. And the findings add to what's been reported in earlier surveys and the government tally of how many people signed up through the new online exchanges. The percentage of the U.S. population that has no health insurance has plummeted from an all-time high of 18% during the last quarter of 2013 to just 15% this past March, says Dan Witters, lead researcher for the Gallup Healthways Well-being Index. We feel pretty comfortable attributing much of this change to the Affordable Care Act. About half got insurance on the new state and federal online health exchanges. The survey found, and half got it through Medicaid, an employer, or bought it directly from an insurance company. In total, probably 7.26 million, but perhaps as many as 9.9 million people got insurance since the last quarter of 2013. Bringing the number of uninsured Americans down from 43.5 million to 36.3 million, Gallup says. Yeah, we got to get some of that. From CNET.com Amazon Prime's US members will have to swallow a $20 increase that will push their membership fees to $99 a year a price hike that raises questions about the real value of the two-day shipping program. The assumption has been that in addition to predictable two-day shipping, Prime customers end up saving money versus non-Prime members. But CNET took a look at a number of products and found that isn't always the case. In some instances certain products under Prime actually cost more than their non-Prime counterpart with the shipping fees baked in. For example, the PlayStation 4 DualShock wireless controller cost $59.96 through Prime. A non-Prime seller had the same item listed for $56.22 with the $3.99 shipping cost included. The membership provides unlimited two-day shipping on 20 million Prime eligible products as well as unlimited access to Prime video streaming which is a selection of the total videos that Amazon has available and the Kindle eBook lending library. While Amazon says the hike will help cover rising transportation costs, it has also had the unintentional effect of causing some people to pause and reconsider the value of the service. I am an Amazon Prime member. My membership doesn't expire or isn't up for renewal until August so I have some time to determine whether I will renew it for another year and I am definitely considering whether that will be the case whether the Amazon Prime Video Service has enough original or uh, exclusive content to keep me connected and whether the savings on shipping are really truly savings on shipping Because, as this story points out, there are often times when items that are not part of Amazon Prime or the same item that is part of Amazon Prime also can be purchased outside of Amazon Prime and sometimes for a lower combined cost than the Prime price. So definitely a lot for me to consider as I get closer to needing to renew my Amazon Prime membership. There was a ton of news about Heartbleed, which was a major security flaw in systems that uh, provide security for many websites on the internet. It's one of the basic security structures, had flawed code, which allowed for people to. Um, get some raw data off of websites that could include IDs and passwords. It, what has not been reported widely because it's not been discovered is that attacks were in any way shape or form common. Um, and this story is from April 17th. Canadian teen is the first hacker arrested for exploiting Heartbleed So, this arrest came after the Heartbleed uh, flaw was detected and widely talked about. In the first such arrest since the Heartbleed security flaw became public, a computer science student from Ontario allegedly used Heartbleed to breach the Canadian Revenue Agency. The agency reported that 900 social insurance numbers had been compromised. The student was arrested without incident and faces one count of unauthorized use of a computer and one count of mischief in relation to data. So again, it's the extent of the flaw and potential impact was extremely widespread. Most websites have resolved that at this time. And the extent of the actual exploits of that flaw have been either extremely minimal or very, very well underreported. And I believe the minimal is more likely than them being underreported. But not every attack could be easily detected as well. So it is really unknown how widespread attacks may have been. This is the worst radio ever. Well, hopefully up till now it hasn't been the worst radio ever. But after this next story, you may have a better argument. Um, On the last episode, I talked about uh, I think the character's name was Dom Chimi, which was a character in a very popular cartoon in South Korea, who was uh, infatuated with Pooh, and shortly thereafter found this public service project um, underwritten by UNICEF in India, and this was published on Nitarama.com. It seems that crap is literally piling up on the streets and sidewalks of India becoming one big smelly mess that affects the health and hygiene of the people. So UNICEF has come up with a catchy way to remind people to deposit their waste in the proper receptacle. Mr. Pooh. He's the stinky star of an advertising campaign. A really catchy music video that urges people to, quote, take the poo to the loo, and a video game where players flush away the villainous Mr. Pooh's legion of turd minions. Mr. Pooh is someone you don't want hanging around your city streets. So if you want to find more about Mr. Pooh, look up Mr. Pooh online, or look up the story from Nidorama called Meet Mr. Pooh, India's Anti-Public Defecation Mascot. I've never heard dumber dialogue. (laughs) So wrapping up this episode, a story from Chris Moran at Consumerist.com. The North Carolina man who misled a Walmart customer into letting him help her try on shoes and then crossed a big line by sucking on her toes, was sentenced to 60 days in jail. But he is being given credit for the 21 days he's already served. I apologize to the victim, he told the court. I am ready to take full responsibility for my actions. According to the TV station WSOC, He has a criminal history of doing lewd things to female feet that goes back to 2001. So excuse us if we're a bit skeptical about his sudden willingness to straighten out and fly right from now on. That will wrap up episode number 16 of Unrelated Things. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen. You can find out more about Unrelated Things on at unrelatedthings.net or you can follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or on Facebook. Thanks for listening. It's Unrelated Things.